Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's Welcome to the Bomb Squad Podcast. I am your host and master of ceremony, Tanner Richard Kraft, and with me I have... Hi, I'm Austin Swiebelman. I'm Joseph Vrenick. I'm Tim M. Sullivan. I'm Ethan Hawker. And uh, we have a very, 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 very special guest today. Pete Timmerman. <laughs> this is cool. He was a lot of our professors in college. Well, what do you do? Plug yourself here a little. These days, uh, my day job is to run the Webster University Film Series, which is St. Louis's only year-round nonprofit movie theater. I work with Ethan. Uh, it's pretty much the, the two of us, uh, but I also teach film studies classes at Webster University. Some of the best classes I ever took. Same. I famously tortured Pete by writing an essay about the Avengers, so... <laughs> Better that than Shrek. <laughs> Today, we're talking about the Simpsons movie, but uh, before we talk about the Simpsons movie, this is probably going to be our only chance to talk about The Simpsons as a whole. So, what is your general history with The Simpsons? Which I know is kind of a loaded question, but <laughs> let's get out right into it anyway. Uh, so, Austin, I want to start with you. The first decade or so of my life, The Simpsons was something I kind of had to love in secret. I saw a lot of crazy movies as a kid, but the difference was my parents actually knew what The Simpsons was. So, like, I could fish out a DVD copy of A Clockwork Orange to no protest whatsoever, but getting caught watching The Simpsons was, like, grounds for getting grounded. But I always kind of liked it. Some of my efforts to smuggle contraband Simpsons into my life were, like, boilerplate standard kid shit, like catching it on Fox when my parents were out doing something else. Some instances were way less standard. Like, there was this indoor playground called Tumble Drum that existed when I was a kid, and as luck would have it, there was this hard-to-access area two stories up in the middle of a bunch of tubes, and there was a copy of the 1991 Simpsons Konami beat-em-up game, and I played the shit out of that. One time, I went to the Scholastic Book Fair at my elementary school equipped with $50 to buy books. I remember buying a decoy copy of Captain Underpants to hide my real score, which was a big-ass, like, The Simpsons comic. And it's sort of an anticlimactic ending to all this. This movie came out 21 days after I turned 13, so my mom just kindly let me see this in theaters with my sister. <laughs> and it was fun singing Spider-Pig at recess for the rest of that year afterward. That's the important stuff. Back to you, Tanner. Uh, it's so wild hearing that you weren't allowed to watch The Simpsons as a kid, because that was what my family did Sunday nights, was watch the new episodes of The Simpsons as a family. Nope. Your parents are very different from mine. Too subversive. Watch me turn on the TV. Tim, how about uh, how about you? What's your history with The Simpsons? As somebody who grew up without cable, there was definitely this era of my life where the Sunday night staples were The Simpsons, King of the Hill, Family Guy, Futurama, those Fox animated series, the animation domination stuff, if you will. I watched it because I knew my parents didn't like me watching it, <laughs> specifically King of the Hill. Like that was a show that like I watched it because it was taboo. Ooh, but I didn't get it until way later. I know what you're here for. Dale, uh, this isn't how I wanted you to find out. Quit screwing around with my mower. 
As far as like The Simpsons go, I wasn't like as religious following it back then. I think it was that Austin fallacy of just like, I thought that edgier things were automatically better. So like I gravitated more towards Family Guy and like the Matt Gronig show that I liked more was Futurama. But like every time I see Simpsons stuff, it does make me laugh. And I've always wanted to kind of go back and revisit the series like episode to episode, season to season. You're pregnant again? until I just kind of get tired of it. You always hear about how like the first nine or 10 seasons were the only good seasons of The Simpsons. And I'm sure there's like a grain of truth to that, but it's like even just 10 seasons is a good fucking run. Most shows get old after like five or six. And uh, this movie came out, I was 14 at the time. It was like right during that time where I was still watching it pretty regularly on Sunday nights and uh, it looked fun. So I was excited to see it when it came out in theaters. It's funny hearing you say, I was 13, I was 14 when it came out. Um, I was nine. I'm so much younger than you people. Joe, another person who's older than me, how about, what's your history with The Simpsons, Joe? So my history with The Simpsons, as far back as I can remember, I always wanted to watch The Simpsons. (laughs) So when I was like maybe four or five, watching like Cartoon Network and shit like that, every so often there would be these commercials for a particular brand of candy that you might have heard of called Butterfinger. And then that was my introduction to The Simpsons, was you, you, you don't lay a hand on Bart's Butterfinger. I don't exactly remember how I found out, but I found out that it was a cartoon, like a show. This is a simple lie detector. I'll ask you a few yes or no questions, and you just answer truthfully. Do you understand? Yes. And I was like, Mom, can I watch this show? And she's like, no, you're too young. It's inappropriate. Flash forward a good five or so years later, I'm maybe like 10 years old at this point. My parents split up and I'm at my mom's house. I'm watching like Kids WB or something. And then it just switches over to like the uh, older entertainment program run. And they started playing The Simpsons. And then I noticed in the corner a little thing called a TV rating. And I saw that it was TV PG. And I looked over at my mom and I said, Mom, this is TVPG. Can I watch this? And she's like, Do I look like I know what a JPEG is? I think she just really did not fucking care at that point. And then from there on out, it became one of my favorite shows. This would then lead me to like a rabbit hole where I discovered the game Simpsons Hit and Run. I would wind up getting the DVD box sets, which would then lead me to discover what is arguably my favorite uh, season of television ever, which is season five of The Simpsons. That specific season is wall-to-wall bangers, some of the best comedy episodes for television ever written. And then 2007 rolls around, and then I hear a Simpsons movie's coming out. So as you can imagine, growing up a Simpsons fan, I was hyped as all hell to see a Simpsons movie. Ethan, what's your history with The Simpsons as the one closest in age to me? My history with The Simpsons is it was pretty ubiquitous. The Simpsons was probably one of the earliest media franchises I was interested in, in general. I didn't watch it quite so much on Fox, but I caught it a lot on reruns because it used to air on ABC for like an hour from, I believe, five to six. And I'd watch that pretty constantly. And yeah, I was very much into The Simpsons uh, in a big way, um, particularly the older stuff, because I would watch it on Fox every now and again, but it just never quite lined up. 
So usually what I was getting was the older stuff, um, the, the quote unquote good stuff, which I don't know. I would say it is of higher quality than what is made now, but that's only because it's really, really good, well-written television. So yeah, no, I loved it as a kid. I would read um, the comics whenever I could get my hands on them. A lot of the, the weird guidebooks or whatever would pop up at thrift stores and that sort of thing. And the Simpsons movie itself might be the first movie I was like really excited for. I had some amount of internet literacy and I remember going to the Simpsons movie website and they would like have voice clips and stuff from it. It was like, oh, this is so exciting. And like one of the first DVDs I owned was the Simpsons movie on DVD. Probably one of the first commentary tracks I listened to was the director's commentary with the writers particularly. I don't know. It didn't have like the same level of impact as, you know, later things that would inform like that love of animation in me. But it was very significant and I think laying down some of that foundation. I still have a lot of affection for it and it's one of the first things that I had a lot of interest in uh, the production side of something. Um, also, I played a lot of Simpsons Hit and Run. It's like Grand Theft Auto, but uh, with all my favorite cartoon characters. All right. Pete, I'm really excited to hear you talk about The Simpsons here now. Thanks. <laughs> so we can debate. I think I'm kind of the exact right age for The Simpsons. So I was nine when Simpsons Roasting on an Open Fire played originally in December of 1989, and I did watch it live. I never saw it on Tracy Ullman, which is where it started. But yeah, so the first time a proper Simpsons episode aired live, I was watching it live. And then there was this huge zeitgeist, which you're probably familiar. The first couple of years it was on the air, it was just this massive cultural touchstone, but in kind of the wrong ways. I don't know. It was a cultural touchstone, like how like Taylor Swift is a cultural touchstone. Yeah, like it's kind of everybody loved it, you know. And there was, I guess, a certain level of controversy. I absolutely had friends like what Austin was talking about, whose like parents wouldn't let them watch The Simpsons. Usually, more like religious families. That was the case. And we need a nation closer to the Waltons than The Simpsons. My parents didn't care. And it pretty accurately reflected my family dynamic, too, which is why I connected to it so much. But yeah, so, you know, being like 9, 10, 11, and there's this big cultural cachet behind it, I did kind of drift away, weirdly, right when I got very good. Um, in my mind, the peak Simpsons is seasons 4 through 10, thereabouts. Um, but around the time that season 4 came out, that's when I stopped watching it live so much. But I came back around to it pretty quickly thereafter, once I was old enough to get the more adult jokes. So, like, around the time I was 17 or so, I kind of went back and caught back up. Seasons 1 through 15 or so. I've seen those episodes like a bajillion times. Not so much recently, though. I was kind of worried uh, when I got the invite to participate in this podcast. I was like, man, I, I don't have time to do the research to shake all the rust off. Like, I've seen them a bunch, but it's been years at this point. I'm not sure that I've seen anything past season like 22 or so. I think they're currently on season 33, so I can't attest to the current quality. But then that said, kind of being nine when it first hit and became popular, like I was there for all the action figures. Like, they were, you know, initially these kind of boring action figures that were just like plastic blobs that didn't do anything but then there were the cooler ones like 10 years later that you like plugged them into Springfield locales and you pressed a button and they spoke a couple of lines of dialogue and I've got all the kid robot ones um, they're in my bedroom like in like a nerdy thing on the wall but yeah like I got all the DVDs when they came out and actually there was a store in Kirkwood that would sell me the season box sets like a day or two before they came out so I would always specifically go there so I could get them a day or two early like it has always kind of been a big part of my life <laughs> Stop laughing, you imbecile! Don't you realize how close you just came to killing yourself? 
in recent years, I have wanted to make a project. Weirdly, I got the idea, I think, kind of toward the end of lockdown in 2020, where I want to just do kind of like a journal, you know, like front to back, just watch every single episode in order and maybe not take like a lot of notes, but make, you know, some a little bit of commentary like this is one of the best. This is one of the worst, whatever. That's such a big endeavor. I feel like I wouldn't finish it at this point. Um, they're nearing episode 750. So that's a whole, whole, whole lot of hours of television. <laughs> so, I yeah, I think I drift away before I finished it. Joe was saying that he thinks season five is the best and season five is incredible. I think I vote season eight is the best, but still kind of, there's no real wrong answer between like season four and nine. Thank you, son. And do you think you could stop the casual swearing? Hell yes. That's my boy. Yeah, I guess that's the long and short of it. All right. My time is shot. Hello, history of the Simpsons. Uh, again, to put it in perspective, Pete was nine when the first episode aired. I was nine when the movie aired. <laughs> so different generations here. As far back as I remember, the Simpsons is a thing that's existed. I don't know of a time before the Simpsons. And if Fox has it their way, I probably won't know a time after the Simpsons either. Or Disney. I guess they run it now. Oh, that's weird to think about. I'm the mascot of an evil corporation. <laughs> Get down from there. Every Sunday with my family, my parents have always been pretty, like, open about stuff. The only thing I remember not being... This is funny. My parents would let me watch The Simpsons with them, but I wasn't allowed to watch Cartoon Network. Make of that what you will. My parents were very inconsistent in their rules. I wasn't allowed to watch Cartoon Network, and I wasn't allowed to watch Seth MacFarlane shows. But The Simpsons? Fair game. So I grew up with The Simpsons. I grew up loving The Simpsons. Being a nine-year-old fan of The Simpsons when the movie's coming out, while your mom is a manager at 7-Eleven. Oh boy, it is the best time of your life, let me tell you. All the cool shit I got to touch, play with. Oh my God, I think I've gotten rid of a lot of it now, but up until like through high school, I had a bunch of collectibles that 7-Eleven was selling back then in various closets and cupboards and whatever. For like a solid three months after the movie came out, I had a homework cut out of my room that one day disappeared when I was home. I, I later think my mom kept getting spooked by it and, and got rid of it. <laughs> I've always loved The Simpsons. I'm not sure if I could pick a favorite season. I do know my favorite episode is always the one where Mr. Burns recruits a bunch of actual real life Major League Baseball players to play in this little company softball baseball game. And then they all one by one. Oh God, sometimes when I'm trying to go to sleep, I'll just hear in my head. Mattingly, get rid of those sideburns. What sideburns? You heard me, hippie. Then I just, just <laughs> I can't go to sleep because I just think of how funny that is. I think my peak of fandom was probably around the time the movie was coming out. So let's just uh, get right into it. Overall thoughts on the Simpsons movie. Ethan, I want to start with you. Um, I like it. I think it holds up even better than I remember um, having watched it, almost burning myself out on it when I had it. Because, again, it was one of only a handful of DVDs I had, so I just couldn't watch it endlessly. No, I think it still holds up pretty well. There's a lot of deadpan humor. There's some stuff that is aged overall, but it's it's generally quite strong. Uh, Julie Kavner's performance um, as Marge, particularly that sort of monologue taping over the wedding video, is a really great emotional core for the film. She brings a lot to it, um, and I'm sure that's going to be highlighted by everyone else. And I overlooked these things because... Because? Well, that's the thing. I, I just don't know how to finish that sentence anymore. 
The animation is quite impressive here in general for what it is. I always think of The Simpsons as a very, you know, there was that divide in the 90s of sort of Ren and Stimpy and The Simpsons, and The Simpsons was writer-driven cartoon and Ren and Stimpy was animator-driven. You get that especially in 92 when they switch over to, like, Film Roman as opposed to Classic Chupo for the animation on the television series proper. But uh, here, I think not only are the layouts good, but the animation is pushed in a way that you don't quite see in, like, the television series up to this point. There's a lot of really cool stuff with like digital compositing and uh, 3D environments to do some neat camera tricks. According to the uh, animator's commentary, the um, bit of Bart tumbling off the roof is an homage to uh, Lupin III, Castle Cagliostro. Following the fine tradition of (laughs) Simpsons animators being inspired by anime, there's that famous shot of Chief Wiggum through the chamber of his revolver uh, that's a reference to um, a similar layout in Golgo 13 Professional, directed by Osamu Dezaki, one of the greatest directors of all time. Just had to get that one in there. While we're on this track, I also have to bring up uh, the episode where there's a Miyazaki sequence. And apparently the uh, angles in the Mr. Burns sequence where they're trying to convince him to give the town power was based on how Jonathan Demi films are framed. That was also in one of the commentaries. <laughs> yeah, he really pushes that in the in the commentary, too. He's just very excited about the, the Demi homage there. I love it. I have two buttons behind this desk. One will supply your town with power. The other releases the hounds. Just look into your heart and you will find the answer. The one that jumps up to me is like, there's some subtle character animation stuff in Marge's speech that she gives. One of the big standouts um, for me is obviously the epiphany sequence. There's a lot of good, like, transformative animation there that I find super appealing. And just a lot of neat little flourishes that obviously you only get in the um, the enhanced uh, runtime and budget and everything, that, you know, because they talk about this film and it's just clear that they were just trying to refine it to a mirror shine. They were not going to make this film unless they were just iterating and iterating and iterating upon yeah, it, which is something... the commentary track is just them talking about test screening reactions. Yeah, like, which is something, like, I mean, you you might lose a little something in that, but I think it's incredibly impressive, especially for something that is, you know, ostensibly, like, a television tie-in, sort of following on a wave of popular television to big screen adaptations that we'd seen with animation in the previous years leading up to this with, like, I don't know, the SpongeBob movie and the Rugrats films and that sort of thing, speaking of Klasky Chupo. It, it all holds together very well, even if it's maybe not as polished as The Simpsons at its very best. It's, it's up there. Right. Joe. Oh, boy. Okay. Not you. Tim, what are your <laughs> thoughts on The Simpsons movie? <laughs> For starters, uh, I just want to take a moment to highlight how much of a dumbass I am. So uh, I watched this with my girlfriend on Friday night. The only time I had seen this movie like in its entirety before this viewing was when it was in the theater. So I did not know about that, like, aspect ratio shift thing that happens. So when I turn it on and I see that it's 16-9 with bars on sides and on the top and bottom, I just assumed that was a Disney Plus fuck-up, which would not be off-brand for them. Yeah. So on my TV, I zoomed in so that it would fit the 16-9. And then the next morning, we're watching the Thor podcast and we see the thing shifting and I'm just like, oops. You Disney plus yourself. I Disney plus myself. In your defense, like, it was, at, when the Simpsons show was on the streaming service at first, all the episodes were in the wrong aspect ratio. Yeah, that's not off brand for Disney plus. Like they did some weird cropping stuff with their version of the Clone Wars. They do a lot of stuff like that. And like, I feel like the aspect ratio shift thing 
works better when you're like going from four three to sixteen nine. You don't have just like a little boxed in screen. <laughs> but anyway, it's still pretty fun. Uh, all these years later, I still really enjoy it. There's a lot of really funny bits. Watching it and like seeing like all of the ways like CG was composited with the 2D animation, like it reminded me of that thing that Austin was talking about on a podcast way, way back. That Invader Zim episode with the walnut. Oh, oh. Yeah, 3D walnuts. 3D, 3D walnuts. The most expensive <laughs> walnuts ever. Right I didn't like, ask for 3D walnuts. We just got them and... And it wrecked the budget for the rest of the season. Is that right? Was it really expensive? Yes! Except it was just like the whole movie was that 3D walnut sequence that fucked their entire season budget. Just a whole really good looking movie. You can see how much work was put into it and it looks great. The Bart skateboarding naked thing was always like a funny bit. People were talking about that before I even saw it. So like I knew that that was going to happen. Thank the Lord for this bountiful penis. Bountiful penis. But like it's still funny. Very good movie. Movie good. Pete, I am really curious to hear your thoughts about the Simpsons movie. So I was working as a film critic in St. Louis when this movie came out. We're recording this on Nope Weekend and they kept the plot of Nope so under wraps. It was kind of the same thing with the Simpsons movie. Like even circa 2007, the Simpsons was seemingly like past its prime and like the general consensus was that it wasn't so good anymore. It should maybe be canceled and here we are 15 years later and it's still on. I don't agree with that consensus for what it's worth, but that still was kind of the public feeling. And then even the people that, you know, like loved it and stood up for it, they're like, eh, it kind of seems like the wrong time for a movie. Like the movie should have come out or Incidentally, um, initial talks, I mean, there'd been talks of a Simpsons movie forever, um, but the season four opener, Camp Krusty, was originally going to be a movie that was going to be the Simpsons movie. How could you, Krusty? I never lend my name to an inferior product. <gasps> they drove a dump truck full of money up to my house. I'm not made of stone. That's kind of the start of the really, really good run of The Simpsons. Anyway, yeah, it seemed like that was around the time for The Simpsons movie and not 2007. And then here they weren't really talking about it publicly and not a whole lot was known. And then even the press screening, at least in St. Louis, the press screening was at 7 p.m. the day before it opened. So like you saw the movie and then you had to go home and write a review in like three hours. Um, so my review is basically like, hey, it's actually pretty good. I'm, I'm Thankfully, I don't hate it, you know, but that was a lot of the initial reaction. It's like, oh, phew, it's not awful. I do think it's really good. I've watched it. I saw it three times in the theater, which is unusual for me. And I've watched it a whole bunch of times since, including twice in the past week. I do think it holds up well. It's not the best. It's not anywhere near as good as the best episodes of The Simpsons, but it does hit kind of a miraculous sweet spot where it feels like a classic episode of The Simpsons that you just haven't seen before. You have to go out there, face that mob, and apologize for what you did. But they'll kill Grandpa. I'm part of the mob. I think that's a really, really amazing trick, considering a lot of things. One is that The Simpsons is so episodic. You know, like they don't have season arcs, but they don't even do like multi-part episodes for the most part. There's Who Shot Mr. Burns, which is part one and two. That's the only one that comes immediately to mind. Each episode is self so self-contained and they're 22 minutes long. And there tends to be that funny, you know, like MacGuffin opening to where like the first five minutes of the 22 minutes has nothing to do with the main plot. Like the plots are so short and tight. And here, this one, they stretch it out. It's about four times the length of an average episode. And I don't think they compromise like the tone or the humor or like the heart of the show at all. It just does feel pretty legitimately like a classic episode of the show. And like I said, maybe not the best, but still, um, I think a lot of the gags are really funny. And just like throwaway ones are funny. You know, like when Homer's eating like the hot dog and Bart shoots it out of his hand and just takes another hot dog out of his pocket and keeps eating that <laughs> casually. I'm like, a lot of that stuff really works. I've 
a lot of the writing is really clever. Um, one of the best lines in the movie is when Homer lovingly corrects Bart and says that it's the worst day of your life so far, but then there's the emotional payoff at the end of the movie. Um, I think that that stuff is really to be admired. I credit most of the success of the things that I've been talking about with the fact that they at least kind of got the original writer's room back together for this movie. I don't remember exactly when it went down, like around if it was immediate or it came a couple seasons in, but uh, Sam Simon very famously put together one of the best comedy writing teams, like writer's rooms in television history. And like by the time the movie was written and produced and eventually released, most of the writer's room had gone off to other things. Um, so like all the best writers were gone by that point. So long, stink town! The one real, real treasure is John Swartzwelder, who wrote, I want to say, 59 episodes of The Simpsons. He's still the most credited screenwriter of The Simpsons, but he'd left a few years prior and he did work on the movie. But yeah, so like they say in the commentary, for example, you know, like their trap like carrots line is a Swartzwelder line. He wrote the spirits to the spider pig song, but he's sort of reclusive and sort of curmudgeonly. I guess it's fair to say he's very reclusive. There's almost no pictures that exist of him. He's done one interview in his whole life and he like they tricked him into about 90 seconds of an audio comment one time, but aside from that, he always turned down any opportunity to do audio commentaries. Oh, hi, is uh, John Swartzwelder there? Who? John? Yes. Is this John? This is John. Who's this? John, it's Mike Scully from The Simpsons. Oh, hey, hi. Yeah, so we're giving you a call. You're, uh, you're on the air right now. Do you mind? No, not at all. <laughs> wow! Hey, wow! Yay. John, we just wanted to verify your existence for the fans. Wonderful. <laughs> how much money do I get for that? <laughs> I don't know how much credit we can put directly in Sportswelder's lap, because there's 11 credited writers and he's one of them. And then among the other credited writers are like, I want to say it's three or four previous showrunners of The Simpsons. Like it's all the main Simpsons talent from the best years of The Simpsons. So I think the producers getting that team back together is what made this movie the success that it is. But then on to other points, um, like Ethan was talking about the quality of the animation, they do do a really good job of making it more cinematic. And I do like that gag with Frank flying across the screen and taking it from 177 to 235. I and mean, I think it works better theatrically. It doesn't work quite as well at home. Um, yeah. But yeah, um, the crowd scenes and stuff like that, there is kind of like a scale and spectacle that both you don't see really like on not just the TV version of The Simpsons, but like any TV at all. Like the, And like each character, it's usually a recognizable character from elsewhere in the, the series. Or even like when they're in the church and things like that, like there is kind of an attention to detail in crowd scenes that you don't get. But yeah, I think it befits both kind of like the epic scale of the movie and the switch from the small screen to the big screen. There's a lot of little details like that that I think they did a really good job of paying attention to. Um, and also, I mean, it's funny. I don't know. I, like, I, I don't mean to take like the draw de vive out of it. Like, I like this movie because it's super fucking funny. Like, that's the end of the story. <laughs> um, but yeah, 2007, when it came out, that was such a good year for movies. That was, you know, There Will Be Blood and Zodiac and No Country for Old Men and the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford and Juno. Four months, three weeks, two days. It was when The Host was released in America. There were so, so many good movies in 2007. And this was one of the best. If my top 10 list that year, this was my number two favorite movie, despite that I just named what, 10 really good movies. A lot of that admittedly is biased. I don't know. I love The Simpsons and I was so glad that I didn't hate this movie. And I think that knee-jerk reaction of, oh, thank God I don't hate it. You know, the more I watch it, I probably like it more and not less. So like, it's not just a relief that they didn't screw it up. It's, it's actually appreciating how good it actually is.
All great points, Pete. The the hot dog gag. I can't believe I forgot about that until you reminded me just now. That is such a good gag. Joe, now you can actually go. For starters, we were talking about Disney Plus and how they fuck up with editing. And I want to call out a hypocrisy on Disney Plus. For some stupid fucking reason, they had to censor the goddamn movie Splash, where they had to put like a, a, oh, ter- this thing. a terrible oh CGI patch over Daryl Hannah's butt, but Bart's penis is okay to keep on Disney Plus. <laughs> Well, one's a cartoon, Joe. All right, I'm. You know, that's I, Disney's explanation. I hardly think the FBI is concerned with matters like that. The thoughts on the actual movie. So I rewatched it last night, and I watched part of it before this uh, podcast recording. And you know what? I gotta say, movie good. M- movie really good. <laughs> It does a fairly good job of keeping everything pretty grand scale for a feature length adaptation of a 30 minute cartoon show on Fox. Um, As far as like maintaining the spirit of the show, I think it does really well. All of the characters pretty much feel as they do on the show and they all get their moment to shine. Even even like the small one off characters get like their moment in the sun. If there is a character that you really like and you want to see in this movie, chances are you you have like a gag or two. Joe, I'm a big Sideshow Bob fan. Am I going to be a fan of this movie? Unfortunately, <laughs> you specifically would probably be very disappointed. <laughs> They mentioned in the commentary that he was supposed to be in at some point before it was like during the motorcycle sequence towards the end. Mm. But like most things it sort of was pulled out because like, I imagine that writer's room was pretty busy. Eleven writers. That's that has to be a very busy writer's room. We have to roll the rock up at the back of the hill. We need a real writer's room. So we've got 14 great writers. Yeah, I'll just end it at movie good. I'll pass it off to Austin. This movie had 11 people constructing the screenplay, and get this, six of these people were from Ivy League schools. You know, The Simpsons were already a decade past its golden year, so it was a smart idea to pull an Ocean's Eleven in the writer's room and help elevate this movie from where the show was at the time. It's funny, when you listen to the DVD commentary and you get the idea that this movie was more whittled into shape, all the cuts, more than any live-action movie could be, you know, recent years with reshoots becoming a dirty word, especially with, like, tentpole blockbusters. There were revisions being made to the jokes up to like two weeks before the premiere. Some people say one week. Uh, This was such a a rampant thing during production that Burger King actually produced 150,000 Russ Cargill toys based off a different character design than the one used in the film. You can see that character design in the deleted scenes on the DVD and stuff. Now, if a normal level is down on the floor, the levels that we're talking about are beyond my middle finger. They moved quickly by doing the primary line work on stuff on like Wacom Cintiq tablets, which had only existed for about six years at that point. Four studios worldwide were like working at a fucking bonkers pace and got this thing animated in about 500 days. It took longer to develop the whole movie, but animation was about 500 days. You can see some huge technical differences between how the show is animated and how this is animated. And I've seen more than one article saying that the majority of this movie's like 
theatrical draw was the fidelity of the animation. One thing that stood out to me was how the film's action-adventure sequences really held up. Like, the perspective of the characters inside the treehouse that's getting bent towards the ground, urging them to bail into a sinkhole. That shot really rocks. I think the fact that they centered the film on environmentalism gives it a lasting, prescient quality. Like, environmental damage is tied to the global dominance of capitalism, so it'll always be a safe bet that it'll be a contemporary third rail issue for the foreseeable future. It was funny, in research, learning about the mythical recluse John Schwartzwelder, who is often credited with being the funniest dude in the writer's room and also staunchly conservative. Now, of course, this is also a somewhat environmental episode, and it sort of became a running thing that John Schwartzwelder would be the writer of these environmental episodes. And uh, he became known as the conscience of the staff. <laughs> Which is funny because I think he's a self-declared anti-environmentalist. I, I once heard John Schwartzwelder give a long lecture about how much more rainforest there is now than there was 100 years ago. <laughs> and satellite photos prove it and stuff like that. <laughs> In one of his episodes, he described a recycling center as a couple of hippies surrounded by garbage. <laughs> and I wonder if he personally rolled with this eco-conscious plotline because they depicted the EPA as an easily corrupted institution that does more harm than good, uh, like Ghostbusters. Everything was fine with our system until the power grid was shut off by Dickless here. Is this true? Yes, it's true. This man has no dick. So far, lots of the pop culture jokes have actually aged well because they chose a lot of properties that have endured over time to make gags about. The physical comedy in this movie may be funny forever. They took some inspiration from Chaplin and Buster Keaton. I laughed plenty of times rewatching this after 15 years, and $75 million played out over an hour and 17 minutes just really makes us feel like a joy to watch. Back to you, Tanner. Uh, I'm glad you brought up the EPA thing. My most recent watch, the only thing that even stood out in my mind is like a negative, if I can even call it that, is why is the EPA the villains? It's a weird choice. It's a weird choice. Of all the government agencies, the EPA. Yeah, I was going to actually say, I do appreciate, um, on the subject of the old Russ Cargill design, they kind of cast him, sort of the original version is sort of a Frank Grimes kind of put upon type, um, who is suddenly given a lot of power. This is a day for the history books, sir. I'm the first head of the EPA to ever meet a president. And I like that they changed it in the final version. A, I think kid talking more quickly keeps up the pace of the film, frankly. And the gag in that deleted scene is just not good. It's not funny. But I think um, having Russ Cargill being like someone who clearly in like the little context we get for his character is that he has a lot of money and he's sort of just stepping into this position. Uh, I think that casts it a bit more even-handedly and makes it seem less like an organizational issue and more like an individual person with power sort of corrupting this institution um, as opposed to someone starting out with noble intentions and then just being corrupted by power, which works a bit better. Um, but yeah, of course, this movie is just deliriously funny. I think the part of the movie that makes me laugh the hardest is when Bart and Homer are having this heart-to-heart -heart while going up the motorcycle. It's just been one long and broken cycle Somebody of- Somebody throw the goddamn bomb! Kills me every time. A lot of other great one-liners, like when the mob is trying to dump that body into the lake. Uh, sorry, sorry, no dumping in the lake. Fine. I will put my yard trimmings in a car compactor. Chief, I think there was a dead body in there. I thought that too, until he said yard trimmings. You gotta learn to listen, Lou. 
But for me, what stood out on my most recent watches of the movie is how much this movie plays as like a really fun blockbuster movie. Uh, the way the music especially ties into the blockbuster aspect of it is really good. In the commentary track, they talk about the moment where Homer convinces Bart to hop on the motorcycle with him. And there's this really awesome music cue in that moment and how they all talked about how that music cue saves that moment. And I think so, too. That music cue was maybe my favorite one of my favorite moments in the movie. I'll let you hold the bone. The man knows me. The emotional pathos in the movie is really there, too. Marge's uh, little speech on the tape, which, by the way, over 100 takes. She did over 100 takes of that. They Shelley devolved her. That's a lot of takes. It's fun. It is funny. It feels like the last great gasp of Simpsons. As a kid, when I didn't really understand how movies were made, I liked the joke that the writers thought the movie was going to be the last thing they ever did. So they said, all right, let's get all our good jokes we have left out now. And then they discovered they had to make 15 more seasons. Obviously not what happened. The Simpsons movie makes gangbusters money. It'll never end. Um, but yeah, we'll have more things Simpson coming up here after the break. Uh, we're back from commercial break, by the way. We're getting into trivia. Well, mention, mention that they have a dedicated effects art. Like, they had dedicated effects artists. That's cool. Instead of having the character animators have to do effects animation, they had dedicated effects artists. That's fun. The uh, the touchstone in, like, the early stages of making this movie was South Park bigger, longer, and uncut. They wanted the Simpsons <laughs> movie to be, to the Simpsons, what the South Park movie is to South Park, which I think is telling. Like, it, it, it does kind of feel that way. They had musical numbers that were cut from what I can remember, which would be reminiscent of the South Park movie. Well, the, the Spider Pig uh, song, which Hans Zimmer made as a joke, made it to number three on the Irish Billboard Hot 100. <laughs> so there's a fun fact for you. Ireland fucking loves Spider Pig. Spider Pig, Spider Pig does whatever a spider pig does. Pete was alluding to this earlier about how, like, the movie's plot was being kept under wraps. It was like that in production, too. The voice work for the movie was kept so secret that the producers would actually personally shred the script after every voice acting session. Think of Jesus. all the trees killed. In the original <laughs> script, Marge was going to have the big church villain. I don't know why the fuck I said villain. In the original script, Marge was going to have the big church villain. God damn it. In the original script, Marge was going to have the big church vision. However, it was changed when they thought it would make more sense that they would be ignoring Grandpa instead of Marge. A certain someone had a senior moment, but that's okay because we love him. And we got a free rug out of it. Edward Norton originally recorded the part of the guy that gets crushed by the dome using a Woody Allen impression, apparently. But the crew thought it was too distracting, so Dan Castellaneta redid the dialogue of a different voice. In total, the Simpsons movie took about nine years to complete because Fox actually first greenlit the project in 1997. But they had to get the voice act cast to sign deals because, you know, movie deals are different than TV deals, which they weren't able to do until 2001. Producing a final script also took seven years because almost 160 different versions were written. And the one they chose is obviously the one we got. Some of those uh, feature idea scripts were repurposed as, as episodes of the TV show. So back to IPA, that whole thing. 
Comic book guy claims that Ipa was the sound made by Green Lantern when Sinestro threw him into a vat of acid. Fun fact, Jeff Johns, writer of the Green Lantern comic at the time, was such a big fan of the film that uh, in volume four, issue 50 of the Green Lantern he was ongoing, he was working on, he actually put in an Ipa sound. 55 minutes into the movie, there's the whole scene we were talking about where Marge is recording over the wedding video and then the wedding video, the song Close to You by the Carpenters plays. Fun fact, in The Simpsons, The Way We Was, 1991 episode of the show, that is the same song that was played in a flashback scene of Homer seeing Marge for the first time. And this is the last piece of trivia I had that I thought was interesting. Release prints, so the prints that the theaters got, were uh, delivered to theaters under the fake title, Yellow Harvest. <laughs> this was also the fake working title of the movie. This is obviously a reference to Blue Harvest, which was the fake working title of one of the Star Wars movies. I want to say Return of the Jedi. Yeah. The best one. That's all I have for trivia, unless Ethan, Pete, does anyone else have something I might have missed? Did we mention Hank Scorpio? That Hank Scorpio was supposed <laughs> to be the villain at one point? Oh, yeah, he was. I forgot. Yeah. Well, they got Albert Brooks anyway. Yeah. Look at my feet. Okay. You like those moccasins? Look in your closet. There's a pair for you. Don't like them? Then neither do I. Get the hell out of here! Ever see a guy say goodbye to a shoe? Yeah, it's once. Tom Hanks is in this movie. That's pretty cool. <laughs> All right, final thoughts. We'll start with Pete. One thing I meant to say earlier, actually, is uh, when The Simpsons was hitting really big, um, circa, you know, like 1990, Fox wasn't in most of America. Fox was kind of a fledgling TV channel, and that's what it was on. We did have it here in St. Louis. I lived down in DeSoto at the time, and I could get it there. But about two-thirds of the country couldn't get Fox, and it was this huge thing. And, you know, you couldn't watch it online. You couldn't even watch it on, like, VHS at that point. Or, well, I guess you could if you had a friend that got the signal and taped it for you. But you didn't have a lot of options to watch it. But then, you know, it kind of snowballed and snowballed and snowballed to where it's not just an American culture. It's sort of a world cultural thing. There is a lot of kind of amazing crossover. I had a friend when I was an undergrad who studied abroad in Italy and she was amazed how popular The Simpsons was in Italy circa, you know, like 2003 or something like that. But yeah, so to satisfy like such a huge worldwide audience, I do think it's pretty incredible. By virtue of the fact that they didn't fail is kind of amazing. But then, like I said, you can kind of come back and appreciate the film on its own terms. It's so um, like fleet footed. It doesn't give you space to get tired of watching it or like reconsider whether it was a good idea to attempt this thing or not. I don't know. I was glad for this opportunity to go back and watch it a couple more times, and I'm sure I'll watch it a bunch more times before I die. Joe, final thoughts. Movie good. I, I had a good time watching this. I will just sign off by saying this is Joseph Vranick. If you see me in person, please leave me be. Tim, what are your final thoughts? So, so I'll start by saying that uh, that final joke at the very end of the credits where the guy's sweeping up the theater <laughs> and he goes, Four years of film school for this? That shit fucking hurted. Oh. That was a mean-ass joke. But yeah, movie was uh, very fun to watch. We recently did a bonus podcast on the Bob's Burgers movies, and I was noticing like some parallels watching this, like just kind of structurally, like there's a sinkhole in both of these movies. And like we get like all of these um, developments of these characters we've been seeing over 10 plus seasons. Both very funny movies. I, I think there's a little more to this one than the Bob's Burgers one. There's just a certain heart to this that I think really stands the test of time. And and uh, you should check it out. Ethan. Yeah, uh, I was almost surprised at how much, like, because I, I was assuming I would enjoy it, but I liked it even more than I thought I would. It was a really real pleasure to revisit. Um, it's uh, incredible how much it stands up, both, like, as a film for fans of The Simpsons, you know, I mean, we didn't even mention it, but there's the little cameo by the Springfield Gorge from Bart the Daredevil, where you see the, the ambulance still crashed in the tree. There's a lot of stuff for... So many and, little details. Yeah, all the, all the ca various characters and that sort of thing um, that you'd obviously recognize, but it's shockingly accessible even to a wide, like, 
a wide audience. Um, like I showed this to my partner. They were completely unfamiliar with The Simpsons and they loved it. And they had a really good time with it. So I think that speaks to its quality as a film, even to my eyes, sullied by so much Simpsons watching. And it was a real good time to revisit for the cast. Austin, what is your final thoughts? Truly the second biggest 2D animated movie of 2007, right behind Aqua Teen Hunger Force, colon movie <laughs> film for theaters. I'm basing that entirely on which one had a better parody of Let's All Go to the Lobby. That's my final verdict. I'm sticking to it. Hell yeah. Uh, I'll have you know that the best 2D animated film to come out of 2007 was actually Cinderella 3. No, oh! no, it wasn't. The Simpsons movie was better. Hey, the Sim Cinderella 3 is good. Fuck you. Uh, the Simpsons movie is very good. You know what else is very good? <laughs> what? What, Tanner? You! The person watching slash listening to this podcast, if you're still here, Pete, do you want to plug the film series here one more time? Oh, yeah. Um, we're on Webster University's campus in St. Louis uh, in Webster Groves. Um, it's in Winford Moore Auditorium, which is part of the larger Webster Hall. We show movies most weekends, just once a night, like 730, something like that. Social media, we're at WU Film Series, Twitter and Instagram. And on Facebook, it's at Webster Film Series. You can check us out there. Yeah, they show cool stuff. I've been there a few times. They recently upgraded their sound system and it sounds great. Yeah, as well as our projection system. It's great. If you are uh, listening to this podcast on any of the audio platforms we're on, please leave a review. You. We really appreciate it. If you are watching this on Spotify video, fuck you, because we can't monetize Spotify video. So because you're watching on Spotify video, one, you can hear me say fuck you. And two, you should go to our Patreon and give us money. Do I get a cut? Uh, what? Do I get a cut? Uh, work that out with your agent. Um... Well, I guess it's Ethan. And if you're watching this on YouTube, thank you oh so very much for watching our podcast on The Simpsons Movie. While you're here, go down to the comment section below and let us know, what do you think of The Simpsons? What is your history of The Simpsons? What do you think of The Simpsons Movie? And um, our final question is, uh, what episode of season 29 is your favorite? Comment <laughs> below and let me know. And while you're down there, hit the like button so we know how much you like us. Hit the subscribe button so we know how much you love us. And hit the bell icon so I can put a giant dome over your house and then break into it. Tune in next week when we talk about Austin, you're hosting this one. Uh, we're talking about the <laughs> international hit RRR from SS Rajamuli. It's going to be a big fucking podcast. Tune in then. It'll be a lot of fun. See you next time. Bye. Tanner, <laughs> Mickey, Rooney, Kraft. That, okay, listen. You ever tried going mad without power? It's boring. No one listens to you. Shh.